9.30, I'm not gonna waste any time. I don't tend to go short, so. We're gonna go ahead and begin with prayer and then we'll jump into the Bible. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for your word. And I thank you that we have the opportunity to look through it uh, closely, carefully, and slowly to understand what you have to say. I pray that as we open up your word this morning, that it would be beneficial to us and it would give us the categories and information that as we come back to these books, uh, we would be blessed by this time um, as you equip us to understand and apply your word more. And I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Have you ever thought about what you want to communicate to those you love before you die? Most of us don't spend a lot of time meditating on the end of our lives because death is a serious, somber topic, and there's a significant amount of frustrating details and emotional baggage that comes along with it. But many of you have already prepared something for your children, your grandchildren, your spouse, Maybe a book, a letter, a thought you want to remind them of before you go. What you tell your loved one before you die is especially meaningful. It's your last chance to tell them something, so you choose what means the most to you. And your words will continue speaking on your behalf long after you are around. Second Timothy is Paul's final words to one of his beloved friends. Near the end of his life, Paul grappled with the reality of his coming death by sending one last heartfelt message to Timothy, his beloved son in the faith. 2 Timothy contains deep theological truths and significant commands for us to follow, much like the other epistles in the New Testament, but we would miss the point of the letter if we didn't see the personal, intimate tone. This is Paul's last chance to say what he needs to say to his loved one, and he chooses his words carefully. And before we look at these words, let's chart a course for our time together. We're going to begin with some background information and then work our way through the content of the letter. Let's begin with the background. The author of 2 Timothy is identified in the first verse as the Apostle Paul. While the internal evidence seems incredibly straightforward, many scholars over the last 200 years have actually denied that Paul wrote this letter, as, as well as 1 Timothy and Titus. And they think this for mainly two reasons. First, these three letters have a very different vocabulary and style than Paul's other letters. And second, many think that the way Paul describes the local church as a structured, organized group seems out of place with the organic, unstructured nature of the early church in Acts. Because of these, they claim that someone else writing in the 2nd or 3rd century attempted to legitimize the way that the church was currently structured in their day and then added Paul's name to their false letter to make it seem like they had been written by the apostle. But these arguments are easily answered as they come from incorrect presuppositions. These letters do contain over 100 words that are not used in the rest of the New Testament, so they are distinct, but that's actually expected. Because Paul was not only writing to a different audience, an individual rather than a church, he's also writing about a different subject matter. He is writing about the structure of the church and the role that Timothy and Titus would play as the leaders. And moreover, we should not require Paul to use the exact same vocabulary in every letters he writes. The scholars who think that Paul didn't write these books think 
that Paul must write similarly in every letter, and that's just an erroneous assumption. In addition, it's not anachronistic to think that Paul wrote about the church as an organized and structured entity. Luke talked about the structure and order of the church earlier in the book of Acts. Acts 6 describes deacons, chapter 14 describes elders, and many other chapters describe the order and structure of the church long before we get to 2 Timothy. The very existence of the pastoral epistles speaks to the way that the leadership in the church was transitioning from apostles to elders, which we see the seeds of as we move towards the end of Acts, but we really see begin to be formalized in these pastoral epistles. And so despite the current scholarly opinion of many, we can have complete confidence that Paul did write this epistle. Paul writes to Timothy, whom he calls his beloved son. And we encounter Timothy for the first time in Acts 16. Paul travels to Lystra, a city in Galatia, which is now in modern-day central Turkey, and he asks Timothy to join him on his remaining travels. Timothy was already a believer at this point, and he was well-known among the churches there, which leads many to believe that he had likely been converted as a result of Paul's earlier trip through Lystra, where he was preaching and sharing the gospel in Acts 14. This preaching from Paul's first journey would have found fertile soil in Timothy, as he had been raised with a heritage of faith from his grandmother Lois and mother Eunice, identified as believers in 2 Timothy 1.5. 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15 tells us that Timothy grew up reading the Old Testament, likely at the behest of his mother and grandmother. He was perfectly situated not only to trust in Christ, but also to lead others in their faith. As Carrie mentioned last week in 1 Timothy, Paul brought Timothy along during his second and third missionary journeys. He helped Paul establish the churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, And he spent time ministering in Thessalonica, Corinth, and Ephesus, both with Paul and in his place when the apostle was elsewhere. Timothy spent over a decade with Paul, ministering with, traveling alongside, and learning from him. He served steadfastly, earning praise in a number of the epistles as an exemplary servant, a fellow minister of the gospel. Timothy was in the trenches with Paul identified in Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon as living with Paul in prison when Paul was in Rome. And the setting for 2 Timothy occurs after that very imprisonment. In Acts 28, we see Paul taken to Rome to await trial before Caesar. During this time, he wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And while Luke ends with Paul still in prison... It appears that afterward, Paul had his trial and was released around 62 AD. First and, Timothy and, first and Second Timothy and Titus speak of a number of travels that don't fit the itinerary of the book of Acts, which indicates that Paul was released from prison and then went on those travels, ministering again to many of these same churches in Greece and Asia Minor. During this time, he established Timothy as a leader in the church in Ephesus. They had both ministered together in Ephesus in Acts 18 and 19, but now Paul left him solely in charge. And sometime after leaving Timothy there, he wrote his first epistle to him, which, as Carrie showed us last week, was largely concerned with how Timothy was to lead the church in Ephesus. 
The letter of Titus, which we'll encounter next week, has a similar tone, giving instructions to Titus, who was an elder on the island of Crete. But 2 Timothy is not just another note on church order. Between the writing of 1 and 2 Timothy, Paul has been taken prisoner again. We don't know the details for sure, but it seems likely that he was captured while he was ministering in Troas, a city in Asia Minor about halfway between Ephesus and Philippi. Paul mentions in 2 Timothy 4.13 that he had left a cloak with Carpus at Troas, and his request for Timothy to bring that cloak as well as parchment and a book, or excuse me, books, indicates that he may have been taken swiftly without time to pack up any of his belongings or organize for his companions to join him. Paul was imprisoned in Rome, and while this wasn't his first time in chains in that city, this time was different. Philippians, or in Philippians, Paul reckoned with his death, as he knew that his current situation could very well be deadly. But he writes Philippians and the other prison epistles with an unshakable hope, and even an expectation that he would survive because God had more for him to do. This time, though, Paul does not write with hope of deliverance from prison. He knows that he is near the end. He writes not quite out of desperation, but out of a distinct awareness of the shortness of time. This is it. And Paul was right. The second imprisonment that serves as the setting for 2 Timothy occurred during the reign of Nero, the Roman emperor perhaps most linked with the persecution and killing of Christians. Church tradition holds that after imprisoning Paul, Nero put him to death in 67 AD. And that allows us to date the book of 2 Timothy to being written between 64 and 67 AD at the time of Paul's death. 2 Timothy shows us a humbled apostle, whisked away to prison, removed from his beloved friends, stripped of his possessions, staring death in the face. He has lost the optimism that flavored his first imprisonment and now knows that death is near. He knows that he has precious few opportunities to communicate with Timothy, so he gathers himself and delivers a message of what he deems to be of first importance. And this message is not a list of Paul's ten favorite doctrines that are meant to be spread around to every person ministering in the church in Ephesus, but rather a compassionate letter written to a specific beloved friend. Just as you may have a different message for your spouse, your child, and your best friend at the end of your life, so Paul geared this letter to the specific situation of Timothy. Before we look at that message, it's worth considering the tone of the entire letter. Tone is incredibly important because you can say the same words in different tones and communicate totally distinct messages. 2 Timothy is filled with exhortations. Paul tells Timothy not to be ashamed, to share in suffering, to guard the good deposit. He commands him to be strengthened, to flee youthful passions, to be ready. And it's possible that he gave these expectations with a tone of rebuke, implying that Timothy had failed in these areas. Don't be ashamed, Timothy. Quit avoiding persecution. Get down in the mire with us, suffering, with us sufferers. Stop being afraid. Get out there and fight. It's also possible that while there's no rebuke, Paul is speaking with a tone of forceful command. Be strong or all is lost. Flee youthful passions as if your life depends on it. 
Always be ready, no matter what. This firm, strong command is closest to what the word exhortation really means in and of itself. And so it's possible that he has that tone. But as you read 2 Timothy, neither rebuke nor strong exhortation really fits the tone that Paul takes with his protege. Yes, it's possible that Timothy had erred and drew correction from the apostle. And certainly, these exhortations bear a firmness and a gravitas that communicates how non-negotiable they are. But the underlying tone of this letter is one of encouragement. Consider the setting again. Paul has ministered with Timothy for nearly 15 years. He has employed Timothy in ways that utilize his gifting, and Timothy has been able to rely on Paul's wisdom wherever difficulties arose. And whether Paul was imprisoned or on a journey, Timothy had confidence that they would always be able to reconnect so he could get counsel or direction. But now the end is near. Timothy was being charged not only with leading the church in Ephesus, but also taking on Paul's mantle of establishing new elders both in Ephesus and elsewhere. In many ways, Paul was charging Timothy to continue his work of growing the church worldwide by making disciples and training leaders. And while Paul was alive, this task was difficult but doable because Timothy could draw strength from his mentor and follow his direction, but now he will be going it without his trusted leader and friend. As the leadership of the church began to transition from the apostles to elders in local churches, this elder was intimidated. Throughout Paul's writings, we get hints that Timothy is a bit weak or frail. And Paul sounds like he is less rebuking Timothy for this frailty and more like he is imploring him to hang on in the midst of his weakness. Back in 1 Timothy, Paul gives Timothy medical advice to help with his frequent physical ailments. In 2 Timothy 1.4, he mentions the tears that Timothy sheds when Paul last saw him showing how difficult it was for Timothy to be removed from his mentor. He implies that Timothy is prone to fear in chapter 1, verse 7. He pleads with Timothy not to be ashamed of God or the gospel or of Paul himself. And his command in chapter 2, verse 1, to be strengthened implies that he was weak. Multiple times he gives not a direct command to do something, but rather a softer, do your best to do this indicating a more delicate touch spoken to someone in need of encouragement. 2 Timothy is a balm to weary souls, who, like the young elder, are in danger of succumbing to fear and doubt. Sometimes believers need a firm rebuke to bring us back to our senses. Sometimes we need to be inspired by a strong exhortation to obey. But sometimes we need a gentle encouragement to hang on to keep going, to look to Jesus. And this is what we find in 2 Timothy. The goal of Paul's encouragement is for Timothy to continue on in the faith and continue in his ministry. In the final verses of 1 Timothy, Paul charged Timothy to guard the good deposit that was entrusted to him. He uses the same language about guarding a deposit that was entrusted to him in chapters 1 and 2 of 2 Timothy. And this deposit has a general and specific reference for him. Generally, the good deposit is the salvation of Jesus Christ, given to Timothy and to all of us who believe in Jesus Christ. To guard that means to keep going in our Christian walk, 
to protect that, to hold fast to that truth. But specifically for Timothy, the good deposit was his mandate to serve as a minister of Jesus Christ in his body, the church. Speaking in the terms of the apostle, we could say that the main message of 2 Timothy is that he would guard that good deposit, both continuing on in his walk in Christ, but also guarding what had been given to him in Ephesus and protecting the church there. But you could also summarize the message in light of Paul's tone with a simple, hang on. Guard the good deposit by continuing on in the faith and not giving up in your calling in the church. Hold tight. Jesus is worth it. Hang on. And Paul uses three primary means throughout his letter to encourage Timothy to endure in this way. We'll highlight the specific uses of each of these as we walk through the content in a moment, but I'll introduce them briefly here as well. First, Paul uses human examples to encourage Timothy. Paul describes the actions and attitudes of himself and other believers to show that not only is endurance possible as seen by all of these people, it's worth it. He also name drops several people who have abandoned the faith and uses them as foils to show that they are not worth following. Second, Paul highlights the power and nature of Scripture to encourage Timothy. Not only do we find the famous passage speaking of the inspiration of Scripture in chapter 3, but we also find several other passages describing what Scripture is and what it does. Paul might be leaving the scene, but Timothy is not left empty-handed. He has the almighty Word of God. And third, and perhaps most significantly in this letter, Paul returns again and again to the power and goodness of the gospel to encourage Timothy. What served as the source of Paul's own encouragement must also be Timothy's. If salvation is by works, we are all hopeless. If Jesus is not raised, all is in vain. If Jesus isn't coming again, there's no reason to endure. But God saves by grace. Jesus conquered death. And our Lord's appearing is imminent. And so in light of the gospel, like Timothy, we must hang on. So that is the background of 2 Timothy. The Apostle Paul writes a final word of encouragement to his son in the faith, Timothy, to encourage him to endure. Using human examples, scripture, and and the gospel, Paul seeks to bolster Timothy's faith and help him stay in the race. And with this background in mind, let's move on to the content of the book. We'll walk through the outline here. And because 2 Timothy is less of a didactic tome, like Romans or Ephesians, where it's a really tight structure with specific points and organization, 2 Timothy is unlike that, and so it's not going to have the exact same tight structure. It reads more like a final conversation between loved ones, with specific ideas in mind, but less concern with intense organization. Nevertheless, we can still loosely divide the book into two major sections, with an introduction and conclusion surrounding them. After the greeting of introduction in chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, we find the first major section in chapter 1, verse 3, to 2, verse 13, And these verses give the encouragement that enduring suffering is worth it. 
Enduring suffering is worth it. And then next, in chapter 2, verse 14, to chapter 4, verse 8, we find the second major section where Paul encourages Timothy that opposing false teachers is worth it. Opposing false teachers is worth it. Then in chapter 4, verse 9, through the end of the book, in verse 22, Paul gives his conclusion. And again, these two halves are less of a neat split between two completely different ideas and a change in focus and tone, and rather a general heading for some of the major themes that Paul touches on in each of these two sections. Each one, he is seeking to accomplish his main goal of encouraging Timothy to hold fast to his calling. Now, in Paul's opening in verses 1 and 2, we find hints of these themes that we've mentioned before. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul emphasizes that his apostleship is not arbitrary, but that it is God's will for him to be an apostle, and by extension, as he mentions later, to suffer as an apostle. In addition, he ministers in accordance with the promise of life in Christ Jesus, the first reference to the hope of the gospel and the joy of our union with Jesus Christ. In addition to his own identification, we can see the first signs of the tender tone of this letter as Paul calls Timothy his beloved child. Not only does he care deeply for his partner in the faith, he calls him his child, his son. There's intimacy there. Lastly, Paul wishes his beloved child grace, mercy, and peace from God. And while grace and peace are a common greeting from Paul, we shouldn't rush past his earnest desire to remind Timothy of the unbelievable gifts that God grants to him. He has grace from Jesus Christ, mercy from the Almighty Father, peace with God. In verses 3 through 6, we hear more of Paul's gentle tone as he recounts some personal history with Timothy. Verse 3, he says, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Paul is not just rehashing Timothy's story to remind him of events of his life. He is reminding Timothy of the path that he has trodden, to point out some specific facts about Timothy's life. He is saying that the faith that Paul has seen in him is sincere. Paul was there when he received a true gift from God. And not only has God been at work in Timothy, he was also at work in Timothy's mother and grandmother. And these are the first human examples that Paul uses to show Timothy that continuing on in the faith is worth it. Lois and Eunice have held fast. You can too, Timothy. In verse 7, Paul reminds Timothy about the character of God as he indicates that God gave him a spirit of power and love and self-control. And this spirit refers both to the Holy Spirit, who is defined by these attributes, 
and to the inner spirit that God creates in those whom he indwells. The Holy Spirit compels us to reject fear and rather to embrace the power, love, and self-control that he himself empowers and enables. And the message for Timothy is clear. I know you're scared, but you don't have to be. God is with you. In verse 8, we find Paul's first usage of the word ashamed, which he'll return to multiple times in the letter. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And here we find the topic of the first half of the book, the reality of suffering. It seems that Timothy was not handling Paul's second imprisonment well. Instead of embracing Paul's impending death with hope, he was ashamed of it. It's possible that the shame was merely surface level and that Paul was only encouraging Timothy not to be embarrassed, to hold his head high. But the more that I read the book, the more inclined I became to thinking that Timothy's shame was more dangerous. Rather than a simple warning not to be embarrassed, I think Paul was pleading with Timothy not to let his shame cause him to leave the faith. Timothy was counting the cost of what it meant to follow Jesus. Following him meant being willing to submit to imprisonment and even to death. And Timothy had been with Paul in prison, yes, but Paul was confident of his release then. This time is different, and Timothy's faith is wavering. But Paul says that there is no reason to be ashamed of the testimony of Christ and no reason to be ashamed of Paul who had been imprisoned for Christ. Rather, Timothy must share in the same suffering. It is worth it. And here we find Paul referencing the power of the gospel as his reason. For in it, he says in verse 9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Prison might be shameful to Timothy, Death might be terrifying, but Jesus is worth it. God planned salvation in eternity past, worked it through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, and will bring it to completion in the not-so-distant future. Paul suffers without shame because of his faith and conviction of the power and goodness of the gospel and the faithfulness of God. And he invites Timothy, as well as us, to join in that confidence. In verse 12, Paul introduces the concept of guarding what is entrusted to him. But significantly, he doesn't begin with an exhortation. He begins with an encouragement. He says that he is convinced that God is able to guard until the end what is entrusted to him. And it's not until he has emphasized God's work of guarding that he says in verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Timothy must guard the good deposit that is entrusted to him, holding fast to his faith and to his calling as a minister, but the mission ultimately doesn't depend on him. 
but on God, whom Paul is convinced will guard the good deposit by the Spirit at work in him. Yes, Timothy is exhorted to guard the good deposit, but Paul does not rebuke him with this calling. Rather, he is encouraging him that it is possible because God is guarding it too. Hang on, Timothy. God will guard the good deposit as you guard it too. Verses 15 through 18 in chapter 1 give two more sets of examples from Paul's life. Phygelus and Hermogenes are offered up as those who turned away from Paul in Asia when he needed them. Rather than follow their infamous example, Timothy should follow the example of Onesiphorus, who ministered sacrificially to Paul while he was in Rome in this second imprisonment. Significantly, Paul mentions that Onesiphorus was not ashamed of his chains, the very thing that Timothy may have been prone to do. Paul praises him and prays for God to grant him mercy, and Timothy is encouraged to imitate his response to Paul's chains. It is with these examples in mind that Paul opens chapter 2 by encouraging Timothy to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He knows that by himself, Timothy will be weak and frail and prone to shame, but in Jesus Christ, Timothy can find strength. Paul urges him to lean into the union with Christ that is true in the gospel and find the grace and strength available for him there. And the strength is essential for Timothy's mission, outlined in chapter 2, verse 2, which provides a model of ministry both for Timothy and for us today. Paul says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And here we can see four levels of discipleship going on in one verse. Paul, number one, has imparted truth to Timothy, and now Timothy must do the same to other people, specifically people who will be mature enough to pass it on to a fourth generation of people. This belies a model of discipleship that desires to reproduce and multiply, ensuring that the disciple will not only know about Christ, but also be able to tell others about Christ as well. And this is inherent in Paul's own relationship with Timothy. He has not poured into his protege merely for his own sake, not merely for Timothy's own understanding, but also for the sake of others. Paul's ministry outlasted him because it carried on in the life of Timothy, which bled into the lives of others and others and on and on even until today we can truly trace our spiritual roots all the way back to this philosophy of discipleship. And we are charged to carry it on today as well. In chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, Paul uses several human illustrations to encourage Timothy to share in suffering. Like a soldier, he must be laser-focused on his calling. Like an athlete, he must run according to the rules God has set up for the race, including suffering. Like a farmer, he should set his hope on the joy that he will find at the fruit which will come out of his suffering. In all, Paul encourages him to hang on, because his suffering, though difficult, will be worth it. And this brings us to chapter 2, verses 8 through 13, which are some of the most encouraging words in the entire letter. Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, 
but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Do you hear the encouragement here? Timothy says, I know your, or Paul says to Timothy, I know you're scared, but remember Jesus. Death could not hold him. Though I am chained up, God's word is not. Trust the death crusher. Trust his unshackled word. Paul's unbridled confidence in God and in his word enabled him to suffer for the sake of others hearing the gospel. And he pleads with Timothy that he would have the same mind. For the believer, death brings life. Endurance brings a crown. Paul says, don't turn your back on him now. Hold fast. And verse 13 in chapter 2 brings the first section of this letter to a close. As Paul shifts his focus away from Timothy's suffering and his fear of suffering and moves instead to an attention on false teachers. Now, the idea of the fear of suffering is still inherent in the second half of the book, so it's not like he's left that behind, but he's now moving his attention more to a different area. False teachers are a common theme in the New Testament, and Paul has even mentioned them in his first letter to Timothy. And Paul, in 2 Timothy here, instructs his young apprentice how he is to deal with these teachers, but I think that he is not just coaching him on how to handle them and how to protect his church from these teachers. I think Paul is also urging Timothy not to join them, not to be tempted by the lies that they are peddling. These false teachers masqueraded as true teachers of the truth, but they sought out pleasure and money and comfort and security. They avoided suffering, the very thing that Timothy may have been prone to do. And so Paul not only wanted Timothy to guard his flock from these people, he also wanted to ensure that Timothy did not succumb in his weakness to their lies. Paul was fighting for Timothy's very soul, that he would not turn to these false teachers. He begins to describe them in chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. False teachers are less interested in the truth, and they're more interested in arguing, in quarreling. Their falsehoods are ungodly and infectious. And Paul identifies two more specific examples of these false teachers, namely Hymenaeus and Philetus, two men who rejected the resurrection and as a result, abandoned their faith. And you can hear Paul's encouragement from a few verses before ringing in Timothy's ears. Jesus is raised from the dead. The resurrection has happened. This gives us great hope. Don't join these two fools. Hold on to the truth of the gospel. Even though these false teachers seem dangerous, Paul emphasizes that God's plan is not altered. He says in verse 19, God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Falsehood will never draw a true elect believer from their faith. Therefore, let all those who profess faith in Christ 
turn away from iniquity and embrace their true Savior. Once again, we have an exhortation to endure wrapped up in an encouragement based on the truth of the gospel. Paul closes out chapter 2 by encouraging Timothy to reject falsehood and rather to embrace the truth. Instead of joining the false teachers who are currently in the snare of the devil, Timothy is to correct them with such gentleness that they would repent and return to a knowledge of the truth. Moving on to chapter 3, in verses 1 through 9, Paul gives even more evidence that joining the false teachers will only lead to heartache. Paul gives 20 different descriptions of the gross nature of the coming opposition to the gospel. And he implores Timothy to avoid them. He must not join their debauchery, but rather hold fast to his good God. Paul continues to encourage Timothy in verse 10 of chapter 3 as he indicates his own confidence that Timothy is on a better track. Even as he encourages Timothy to continue, he says, I know that this will happen in you. He encourages him. Verse 10, he says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You see, I'm clearly laying out a divide here to say, you have been following me and should, but that will bring persecution, and I promise that it is worth it. Or you could follow these people who seem to have an easy life now, but I promise you their end is destruction. To this exhortation, Paul adds a monumental truth about the word of God in chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Notice what Paul highlights about Scripture in these verses. First, he says, Timothy has known it from a child, and it has not failed him. Second, He says Scripture's goodness is not just found in a vacuum, that it is good in and of itself, which is true, but that it is particularly good because it is able to make people wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Timothy need not rely on his own strength to bring people to faith. He can trust that God will use his unchained word to do it. Third, Paul says Scripture is breathed out by God. Breathed out by God is one word in Greek, and it is not a word that is seen in any Greek literature before this book, indicating that Paul likely coined it himself by combining the words for God and spirit or breath, resulting in God-breathed or inspired by God. 
This word tells us that Scripture at once is intimately connected to God and exactly what God intended to say. It is God's word. And fourth, Paul says that Scripture is useful for those following God, for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Timothy and any follower of Christ, by extension, need not rely on their own intelligence alone to accomplish God's calling. Instead, we can draw deeply from Scripture to fulfill the calling God has given us. God's Word is powerful. It is enough. And bolstered by this incredible truth, Paul gives Timothy another charge to guard the good deposit entrusted to him in chapter 4, verses 1-5. through He does so in light of the gospel, reveling in the imminence of God in his current presence and in his nearing return. In light of the gospel, Timothy must preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. He must reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. He must be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill his ministry. This is perhaps the most forceful that Paul has been in giving exhortations to Timothy. It is now the final page of the final letter. In the very next breath, Paul reveals the depth of his heart as he addresses the reality of his situation, that it is at the end. In verse 6 of chapter 4, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul is at the end, but he is not hopeless. Instead, he expresses his continued confidence in Christ to care for him beyond the grave. And he invites Timothy to join him in this confidence and to continue in the faith. In verses 9 through 22 of chapter 4, Paul rounds out his letter with a large number of personal details, describing the whereabouts of various ministry partners, making final requests of Timothy, and sending greetings to other beloved friends. We find a few more examples of good and bad ministers here. First, he gives a negative example of Demas, a former partner who deserted Paul for the love of this current world. Timothy must not follow Demas. The world is not worth it. Second, Mark is offered up as a positive example, as he is now a useful brother to Paul. In Acts 13, Mark had abandoned Paul for fear of persecution, and Paul had refused to work with him in ministry. But now he serves as an example of someone who held on, continued in the faith, and remained useful. Timothy would do well to follow his example. In these final verses, Paul asked Timothy three times to join him. He earnestly desires to speak to Timothy face to face. He truly loves his son and wants to see him one more time. And sadly, we don't know if he ever got to. At the least, we know that this letter allowed him to give a final message of encouragement and hope to his child in the faith. As we read it, we should find 
We should also find strength that can meet us at our lowest point and urge us to hold on. Let us hang tight to the truth and goodness of God in the gospel so that we can join the apostle in his final confidence, she expresses in verse 18 of chapter 4. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And with that, we are dismissed.